Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Foundation. Today is November 30th, 2022. I am delighted to be here today with Dr. Maha Nassar, professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona and a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Hi, Maha. Hi. Today, Maha and I are going to talk about Zionism and anti-Zionism. We want to have this conversation because there is a critical need to unpack these concepts. What are we talking about when we talk about Zionism and anti-Zionism? I wanna offer two pieces of framing before we begin. First, there are consequential power asymmetries between people who speak in the name or with the backing of the Zionist state or Zionist ideology or the Zionist movement versus people who speak as anti-Zionist. Much of Jewish leadership in the US, in Israel and around the world insists that anti-Zionism is an expression or a form of anti-Semitism and that expressions in support of Palestinian freedom constitute a threat to the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism is a dangerous form of hate and insisting that anti-Zionism is automatically anti-Semitism is an effective way to render anti-Zionism illegitimate. So when we talk about anti-Zionism and Zionism, we must look at how the power imbalance shapes our conversations. And second, whenever we talk about Zionism and anti-Zionism, we need to establish what we, what we mean by each term. People have different definitions. And because Maha and I are going to be talking about how, Zion, about how to talk about Zionism and anti-Zionism, I want to start with definitions of the terms we're going to be talking about. So first, what is Zionism to Jewish American leaders? What is Zionism conventionally to Jewish Americans or to Zionists? So I'm drawing here from two of the most influential Jewish establishment Israel-aligned organizations. First, the Anti-Defamation League. This is what they say, and I'll have a link to this definition on, uh, on the website. Quote, Zionism is the movement for the self-determination and statehood for the Jewish people in their ancestral homeland, the land of Israel. And the next organization, the American Jewish Committee, this is their quote, and again, I'll have a link on the website. Zionism is the question, Zionism is the quest for national self-determination of the Jewish people. Or I also looked at a new tool. There is an anti-Semitism education initiative at UC Berkeley, and they produced a movie that is uh, widely used to teach about anti-Semitism. And in their film, this is how they define Zionism. And I'm quoting again. Zionism is the belief in the right of the Jewish people to a sovereign state, a homeland where Jews are safe from violence and expulsion. I believe that these definition are, are, definitions are pretty conventionally held among Jewish Americans and among Zionists, Jewish or not. And I want to also offer words from Professor George Bisharat, uh, Professor Emeritus of Law at UC Hastings. He explains Zionism this way in uh, work that he produced together with the IMEU, the Institute for Middle East Understanding, so which is which does public advocacy. So this is a definition written for uh, public advocacy. 
And I'm quoting again. Palestinians oppose Zionism because it destroyed their society and has killed, maimed, or ruined the lives of countless Palestinians and continues to do so. Others oppose Zionism for the simple fact that creating a state for one ethnic or religious group in a diverse society is necessarily racist. So with those definitions, counter definitions, ideas in our mind, we're going to launch in. How do we talk about Zionism and anti-Zionism in ways that acknowledge that there are different ways to understand Zionism and take seriously the power asymmetries in Israel-Palestine and in the US public spheres? So to have this conversation, there's no one I wanted to talk to more than Maha. She's an educator, a historian, and she's someone who takes risks to reach unexpected audiences. Maha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So my first question for you, how do you think about these issues and, and how do you navigate this terrain? As an educator in the classroom, doing public advocacy, doing bridge building work, will you talk to us about how you approach these issues with different audiences? Sure, I'd be happy to. So as I think about these questions, and as someone who engages in both public education and university education, um, often at the same time, sometimes in the same day, uh, I'm constantly asking myself three questions. And those three questions are, number one, what is my role in this space? Number two, whom am I helping by being in this space? And number three, does being in this space align with my values? So I'll give you an example from the classroom. So I teach, I'm in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. I teach a lot of classes about the Middle East. I teach classes about Palestine and I teach classes about what we still call the Arab-Israeli conflict. So in the classroom, my role is as an educator. My role in that space is to be an educator. And who am I helping? I'm helping students of various backgrounds, various politics, various um, sort of frameworks that they're coming in with. I'm helping all of those students develop deeper understandings of multiple perspectives. So I want them to be able to see different perspectives, but I want them to do so without losing sight of the real on the ground power asymmetries. So it's not just that we're like, oh, this group thinks this way and that group thinks that way, but really understanding what the consequences are on the ground for different people. So when it comes to Zionism and anti-Zionism, for example, we talk about Zionism as an expression of Jewish nationalism and self-determination. And we also talk about Zionism as it's been experienced by Palestinians. Palestinians have experienced Zionism as a settler colonial movement one that was predicated and still is, I would argue, predicated on dispossessing Palestinians from their land and denying them their full rights to self-determination. Thank you for all of that. I just, I, I wanna repeat the questions. So you start, you ask yourself three questions. What is my role in this space? Who am I helping by being in this space? And does being in this space align with my values? Okay. That's your starting place. Thank you for that. So, and thank you for describing where you are in the classroom and how, and how you do the classroom. Um, how do you navigate public advocacy in education about Palestine? 
So in public advocacy and because of my role as a public uh, educator and my roles in um, writing op-eds and doing webinars and podcasts like this one, I'm usually brought on or invited to a space to talk about the Palestinian perspective. It can be in a more academic setting. There are a lot of webinars, as you know, especially since the pandemic, might be in a community space as well. And so because the general public knows so little about Palestinians lived experiences and worldviews, and because I'm usually brought in to talk about that, that's what I focus on quite understandably, I think. So I focus on the impact that the Zionist movement and the state of Israel have had and continue to have on Palestinians through occupation, discrimination, exile. So I'm really focused on conveying as much information as I can in as succinct a way in a short amount of time as possible. So that's my role. And I'm there to help Palestinians get their story out because of the historic exclusion of Palestinian voices from the public sphere. And because of that asymmetry and that lack of exposure to Palestinian voices, and because there's so much misinformation about Palestinians, when I'm in those spaces, usually for an hour or less, every second is precious. And so for me, if I were to take time away from that to acknowledge Zionist framings or to talk about, well, Zionists actually see it this way as an attempt to somehow make myself seem more balanced, especially when the situation is so unbalanced, to me, it would feel like a betrayal of the Palestinians and their stories. And that would not align with my values. So my value in that space would be education, but also advocacy and making sure that more people know about the Palestinian stories and perspectives than they might otherwise know. Thank you for that. So, and tell us about the, the third, which is um, a, a kind of bridge building or, or, or back channel. It's, it's the offstage uh, relationship building that you do. Yeah, and it's something I've been doing for a long time. A lot of it's in the context of interfaith work. And here's where my spiritual practice, I think, and my experiences as a practicing Muslim, as a visibly, uh, as a visible Muslim who wears hijab, um, I think that's where those experiences and, and my, um, my own perspectives come in. Um, and I think people are often surprised when I'm in those bridge building spaces because I'm actually quite fascinated by um, Abrahamic faiths in general and Judaism in particular Given my own history and training and, and, and kind of graduate school training, I studied Hebrew, I studied Judaism, um, and I'm really fascinated actually by the parallels between Arabic and Hebrew, between um, Islamic law and Jewish law. So I come into those spaces often with a lot of questions for my interlocutors, and they're often quite um, maybe amused, maybe surprised that I'm interested in, that I'm able to draw parallels, whether they're linguistic parallels or religious parallels. And so in those spaces, my role is as a, as a faith builder, as a bridge builder. And I don't see that as necessarily contradicting my role as an educator or as an advocate because there's so much demonization of Palestinians and because so much of that demonization is tied up with Islamophobia. I think that by helping to dispel some of the myths about Muslims, I'm also helping to dispel myths about Palestinians in the process. 
Great. Thank you for that. I, I want to ask you a little bit more about bridge building in particular, because, um, and you mentioned your, your spiritual practice and, and also your natural curiosity, which in, in some ways, these are um, characteristics that we would almost think of that, that could be thought of as something that is as if outside of politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we know that there are um, many attempts and, and programs in the world that are, that talk about bridge building as, as, as the solution for everything and actually excise power and excise politics. Um, and we could do a whole other program about the, 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 um, the harm caused by dialogue groups or, or, or normalization projects um, that seek as if to, to make peace through peace, through talking mm-hmm. um, without a power analysis. And you are very explicit about looking at the ways in which um, uh, Palestinians have been silenced and the importance of bringing the actual Palestinian experiences to your audiences, Palestinian experiences of oppression and silencing. So I want to ask you um, how you do bridge building in a way that um, that brings in and acknowledges and and recognizes power, and I and I want to name specifically that that one thing that that often comes up is that um, the idea that engaging with Zionists at all is a is a is a kind of normalization, and this is obviously important among um, Palestinian activists. So, I, can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach normalization and what role it plays? in your decision-making around engaging with uh, proponents of Zionism? Sure. So as I said before, I think it's really important to be clear about my intentions and also about the spaces that I'm entering into, right? So to go back to those three questions, what is my role in this space? So if I'm invited to something that looks suspicious, we'll say, my question would be in terms of role, am I being tokenized? Am I being brought in as the Palestinian um, or a pal- or maybe not as a Palestinian, maybe I'm being brought in as a Muslim in a way that denies my Palestinianness. So am I being tokenized is the first question. The second has to do with helping. Am I helping Palestinians, Muslims, the general public by being in this space? Or am I helping to legitimate the group that's inviting me? And then the third question in terms of alignment is being in this space aligned with my values. The way that I think about that is, will I be able to bring my full self into this conversation or into this group in ways that feel authentic to me? And so I'll give you an example. Two examples, both happened pre-pandemic because everything seemed to have happened pre-pandemic. So back in 2019, uh, around the same time, sort of spring 2019, I got two invitations. One was to join a local chapter, a local group called Sisters of Shalom Salam. I don't know if you've heard about this group. So the idea is to bring Jewish and Muslim women together and they talk and they meet, I think, monthly and they you know, get to know one another. The condition though is that they can't talk about politics for the first two years of their meetings. They can't bring up Israel or Palestine or anything at all. And so I was invited to join this group and I quite quickly and 
with great uh, emphasis said, no, thank you, because I would be tokenized. I'd be brought in because they had an imbalance of Muslim to Jewish participants. I would be legitimating this group by making it seem like it was being productive. And I would not be able to bring my full self into the conversation. I'm a Palestinian who can't talk about Palestine. I'm an educator on Palestine who can't talk about Palestine. What's up with that? So that was an easy pass. But around the same time, I was invited to participate in a book club. Uh, again, sort of involving, this time it was framed as involving both um, Jewish participants and Palestinian or Arab participants. It was focused on a particular book, uh, an edited volume that had come out at the time called The Holocaust and the Nakba. And uh, it was an interesting sort of book that I hadn't read yet, but was you know, interested in reading. And it was clear in the invitation and it became clear in, in the gatherings that we were there to really tackle the difficult conversations right away. The role that American Jews have played in silencing Palestinians, the role uh, of American Jews in um, denying the Nakba or in not allowing Palestinians to talk about their experiences in the Nakba. It was difficult discussions. We met, I think, four or five times that summer, um, but it was very fruitful and it was productive. I felt like my role there was a productive one. I was helping under, I was helping educate the participants about my experiences and the experiences of others. Um, and it aligned with my values of both education and advocacy. And I was able to bring my full self into that conversation. So those are just two examples from one summer that sort of, I think, illustrate how I, how I uh, walk the line between engaging in dialogue, but without normalizing oppression. That was very helpful. So thank you for all of that. And I, and I actually, I, I think I want to take it, um, take this question like a, a, a step further and, um, and, and to go to where I want to go, I want to, I want to lay out some more terms. So anti-normalization uh, is, is a um, political principle among Palestinian activists and advocates. And I want to bring in a, a definition of it, of, of what it means and, and what we mean when we talk about normalization and anti-normalization. Um, I'm drawing from the Palestinian BDS National Committee, BDS being uh, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions. So the Palestinian BDS National Committee, which is the, they say the broadest Palestinian civil society coalition uh, working to lead and support the BDS movement for Palestinian rights. So, and, and here I'm quoting, and, and again, as with all the definitions in this, um, in this podcast, we're gonna have all the links on, on our homepage. So um, the, the BDS National Committee, also known as the BNC, says, and I'm quoting, normalization with of Israel is, then, the idea of making occupation, apartheid, and settler colonialism seem normal and establishing normal relations with the Israeli regime instead of supporting the struggle led by the indigenous Palestinian people to end the abnormal conditions and structures of oppression. That's their definition. And then they go on to explain what that means in practice. And they say, again, I'm quoting, normalization is the participation in any project, initiative, or activity, local or international, 
that brings together on the same platform Palestinians and or Arabs and Israelis, individuals or institutions, and does not meet the following two conditions. And these are their conditions. That the Israeli side publicly recognizes the UN-affirmed inalienable rights of the Palestinian people, which are set out in the 2005 BDS call. And the second condition, that the joint activity constitutes a form of co-resistance against the Israeli regime of occupation, settler colonialism, and apartheid. So we have anti-normalization as defined by the BNC on, on the one hand. So, okay. And then I also, Maha, you operate on a college campus. Um, mm -hmm. At, at a, a large American university. And so you, and you teach students from all walks of life. And you also teach many Jewish students and Jewish students with Zionist backgrounds. And um, Jewish students have a home on, uh, on college campuses or the, the, the um, Jewish home on college campuses, which is Hillel. Um, mm -hmm. Hillel is the, the largest Jewish student organization in the world. Um, they say that they have a presence on more than 550 colleges and universities. Um, I say they say because I'm drawing from their information. I'm not. I, I'm not doubting that they do. Um, they're they are on colleges and universities all over the country, and and in, in fact all over the U.S. and in fact in many countries around the world. Um, and Hillel also has Israel guidelines, very specific Israel guidelines that come from Hillel International, which is the 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 parent organization, the umbrella organization and um, are guidelines that are supposed to be followed by the, the Hillels, the local Hillels on every college campus. Um, and so now I wanna quote from those guidelines um, and they have what they call standards of partnership. So these are Hillels, Hillel International's standards of partnership. Now I'm quoting again. Hillel will not partner with, house or host organizations, groups, or speakers that as a matter of policy or practice, four things, four things that they won't host, as a matter of policy or practice, one, deny the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish and democratic state with secure and recognized borders, two, delegitimize, demonize, or apply a double standard to Israel, three, support boycott of divestment from or sanctions against the state of Israel, or four, exhibit a pattern of disruptive behavior towards campus events or guest speakers or foster an atmosphere of incivility. So, okay, now we have Hillel in the room, we have the BNC in the room, and Maha, I want to ask you, how do you navigate or how would you navigate engaging with Hillel at the University of Arizona or any university where you might find yourself? Sure, um, a lot there. Thank you for laying out those definitions. So I think it's important to highlight a couple of the terms that you laid out in, in those definitions. So the BNC definition of normalization is specifically about bringing together Palestinians and Israelis on the same platform. And they're very specific. So those three words, Palestinians, Israelis, and on the same platform. So that I think is different from engaging with American audiences. And I wanna make sure that we don't conflate American Jews and American Jewish institutions 
with Israel and Israelis. I think that's a very dangerous road to go down and I and is and is inaccurate, frankly. Um, and is just nonsensical in many ways. So the so the BNC is has is a very specific call against normalization that has to do with bringing together Palestinians and Israelis in that PC dialogue kind of way that you were talking about earlier. So that's very clear, but also very specific and concrete. Turning to Hillel and Hillel's standards of um, practice in their Israel policies. Um, I think, again, I'm gonna go back to my three questions, right? So engaging with Hillel students on campus, that's not a problem. My role is as an educator. These are students and men. We are shared members of the University of Arizona campus. I have and would be happy to continue speaking um, with Hillel students, members of the Hillel community at the University of Arizona campus. I did so earlier this year, again, pre-pandemic as well. Um, and I think it's, they, they've been very fruitful. In my experience, they've been really fruitful conversations. Um, I think though that because the National Hillel Organization has these standards of practice, they don't align with my values. And so I would not speak to the National Hillel Organization as long as this continues to be their policy. Because again, it wouldn't align with my values. Were I to even be invited, I would feel like I was being tokenized, bringing on the sort of nice Palestinian or the good Palestinian or the moderate Palestinian who you know they hope won't say anything too out of the box for them. So that's how, again, that's how I navigate these spaces. And so thinking about it also public versus private, right? My conversations with Hillel students on campus are private. They're not recorded or broadcast or like, you know, they're, and creating that intimate space. And I think we'll talk about this um, as we move forward. I think creating that intimate space is necessary for that kind of bridge building. Public bridge building doesn't work. It becomes performative and it's, it's not good. So we also need to think about audience. We need to think about, again, the role, my role in a particular space. Is this a public space or a private space? Um, what is my role in the space? Um, so that's how I think about it. Thank you. That's, that's um, very helpful. So, um, and I wanna pick up on, on where you just went. So public bridge building you said is performative and doesn't work private bridge building is about creating an intimate space um, for, for exchange. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, th I think what you're saying is the, the, there's intimacy in engaging in an authentic way, or there's authenticity in engaging in an intimate way. I, I think mm -hmm. I could even reverse those and say, say both of those are true. Um, but to do that kind of engaging as I understand it, um, which is really about building an authentic relationship with the the, the person or the people you're talking to, um, requires, or or let me hypothesize. In my experience, it requires a kind of openness, mm -hmm. um, in a, a kind of vulnerability, in order to to do that that kind of exchange and have it actually be authentic to meet another human being in an intimate level requires a kind of, 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 uh, of vulnerability. And, um, that's, there, there are real stakes there in engaging with, with vulnerability, um, with, with Zionists and, or, or about, about Zionism, 
Um, so can you, would you talk to us a little bit about how you navigate openness and building connection and, and vulnerability when engaging with Zionism and Zionists? Sure. So I think anytime now we talk about vulnerability, we have to bring in the queen of vulnerability, which is Brene Brown. And I think, I don't know if everyone knows, but for those of you who don't know, Brene Brown is a researcher, uh, I think psychologist, social psychologist at the University of Houston, also a best-selling author who sort of rose to public prominence talking about her research on shame and vulnerability. And she defines vulnerability as having the courage to show up and be seen when we have no control over the outcome. And so... Wait, 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 wait. Sorry. <laughs> for, the, for the people who are just hearing of Brene Brown for the first time. Sure. Or maybe for those of us who like to revisit her. Give us sure. that definition one more time, please. Vulnerability is, and I'm quoting her here, having the courage to show up and be seen when we have no control over the outcome. Great. Thank you. Okay, please. So, so for me, when I think about being vulnerable with regard to Zionism and also really because Zionism um, and these, these discussions about Zionism are often so intertwined with discussions about Jewish suffering and specifically the Holocaust. So for me, when I think about it, I, I'm, I think about what it was like for me growing up in the US in the 80s and 90s and how consistently my encounter with the Zionist narrative was invariably tied to the denial of my personhood as a Palestinian and the demonization of Palestinians as a whole, whether it was on the news, whether it was at academic or public events. When I heard about the Holocaust or when the Holocaust was invoked, in those spaces, it was almost always to silence Palestinians and to either ignore or downplay our own experiences. It took me a long time to really understand how destructive that argumentation is. And it's destructive, and, I, and I'll speak for myself, I don't wanna speak for other people, but I don't think I'm alone in this. It was destructive because I constantly felt like I needed to build a wall of defensiveness. I would think to myself, I don't wanna concede anything to these people because if I do, they'll just use it as fodder to justify their claims that Palestinians don't really exist as a people, that Palestinians don't deserve a state, that they don't have a homeland or that their suffering is mild in comparison to Jewish suffering. And so a lot of um, so a lot of my resistance to really um, ground myself and dive deep into what it actually means to really try to understand the deep levels of trauma that are associated with Jewish suffering and the Holocaust came from that resistance. It was in grad school, really, not until grad school, that I um, had a friend of mine, a colleague who was Israeli, and she at one time shared with me a personal story about how her mom had been rescued from the Holocaust. She was put on the kinder transport to England in the early days, you know, before, you know, in the early days of the Holocaust, um, and that the rest of her mom's family had perished in, in the Holocaust, and that 
that that experience for her really helped her un, try to understand while at the same time trying to understand the Palestinian narrative we were because we were in the same program. And so that was the first time that I can really remember encountering a story about the Holocaust in a context that wasn't tied to political point scoring and wasn't being used to deny my humanity. And so it was an opening for me to also kind of dig deeper. And I was, again, I was in grad school. I was immersed in all of this stuff. I was learning Hebrew. I was learning about Judaism. Um, I was reading Ghassan Kenafani's work. He also talks, he's a Palestinian novelist, a very fierce and strong advocate for the Palestinian cause, but also writes very poignantly in his novels about Jewish perspectives and experiences with the Holocaust. And I also remember I wrote a, a research paper, a seminar paper in grad school about the Holocaust, about the historiography of the Holocaust. And so to do so, I immersed myself in Raoul Hilbert's The Destruction of the European Jews. It's this huge book, you might be familiar with it. It's like 1300 pages, multi-volume um, and very meticulous. What struck me was his meticulousness in documenting the thoroughness with which the Nazis intended to fully destroy the Jews. And I, I still can imagine myself sitting at my desk at home, kind of going through this book and at the tables and the numbers and really thinking to myself, wow, this is a whole next, this is like next level destruction. This isn't just, you know, I don't wanna say just, but this isn't, this is like a thorough dissemination of an entire people. And so that, it, it was a turning point for me in, in terms of really, I think, understanding at a deeper level what Jewish suffering meant and why the Holocaust looms so large in these Zionist arguments. But again, it's one of the things that's been so destructive about the Zionist discourse is that by tying the Holocaust to the denial of Palestinian suffering, it shut down conversations rather than creating spaces for them. Thank you for all of that, um, for describing your process for and your own trajectory, um, and and also for just what I what I heard you say was that you were able to um, begin to open up when you felt fully seen and held as a person and as a Palestinian. Uh, then you were able also to open up and make space in graduate school for for engaging with um, questions of Jewish suffering and the and the and the role and impact of Jewish suffering differently. Yeah. Which, um, and at the same, yes. So that's all true. And at the same time, I'm also reading histories of the Nakba, mm -hmm. histories of Palestinian suffering. Um, I'm digging deeper into my own family's history. My mother and father were both, both experienced the Nakba as children, and that had profound impacts on them and their families. And so again, how do we hold these stories of Jewish suffering along with the stories of Palestinian suffering, but we do so in ways that also recognize the ongoing impact of Palestinian suffering on the ground today Mm -hmm. as a result of a Zionist movement that I would argue has weaponized the Holocaust to oppress Palestinians. Yes. 
And that's the, that's the tricky bit of it mm-hmm. because making that connection can, I think can be read or understood by some people as, well, you're not fully understanding the Holocaust or you're denying it or you're not appreciating it or what have you. And it's, and it's no, it's, and it goes back to the George Bouchard definition that you cited at the beginning, that when Zionism is used to oppress another people, that's not acceptable, mm-hmm. not acceptable, regardless of how great, and again, I don't wanna minimize the suffering of Jews and of the Jewish people, but we can't, we can't live in a world where the suffering of one group is used to justify the ongoing oppression and suffering of another group. It doesn't work. Thank you for all of that. Um, thank you. I I want to bring us to another live thread of this conversation um, and talk about how the phrase from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is understood and interpreted in particular ways. And this is such a live question because just the phrase from the river to the sea, that phrase itself is taken by many Zionist advocates by many, by many Jewish people, by many Jewish advocates, as an automatic threat to Jews and to Israel. It's often interpreted as a threat of ethnic cleansing. And yet, this is a very popular Palestinian expression, uh, one that you have written about. And so I want to ask you to please talk to us about this phrase, from the river to the sea. Talk to us about what it means. And also, uh, please talk about what the reactions to its expression tell us about the power imbalances that you've been discussing today. Yeah, it's it's a, a very timely uh, conversation to have right now um, for a few reasons, and I'll explain why. So one reason why it's timely is that yesterday, November 29th, was the 75th anniversary of the vote at the UN to partition Palestine. And... Um, as we know, the partition plan didn't materialize as the UN had expected. We also, I think most listeners know, that the Zionist movement officially accepted partition, although it didn't abide by its borders. Um, the official Zionist leadership abided by par- or accepted the partition plan, but didn't abide by its borders. And Palestinians across the board rejected the partition plan. The argument that Palestinians made at the time was both a principled one and a practical one. On principle, Palestinians said, Palestine is our homeland. It's our an indivisible homeland. And that um, dividing Palestine or partitioning Palestine is like, uh, they would invoke the story of Solomon and the baby. So this is a story in all three Abrahamic faiths where two mothers went to Solomon, each one claiming that the baby was hers. Solomon said, well, let's split the baby and um, each take half. The real mother said, no, no, don't split the baby. The, what became the false mother said, it's okay. And so Palestinians saw their refusal to quote unquote, split the baby as a sign of their actual um, attachment to Palestine's integrity as a whole. On a practical level, the partition would have meant, even if it had been implemented, would have meant that you would have had about half a million Palestinians living in the area that was designated as part of the Jewish state. It would have been cut off from the rest of the 
Palestinian population. And they probably, I think it's pretty clear by now, they probably would have ultimately been expelled from the Jewish state. Palestinians also, it's important to remember, have a very localized identity attachment to land. So in addition to the national, the sort of Palestinian national identity, there's also a very local Palestinian identity that Palestinians have when they meet with one another. One of the first questions they'll ask is, oh, you're Palestinian? What balad are you from? What town, what city, what village? And so it's a very localized identity. So the phrase from the river to the sea goes as far back as the partition plan and it became um, sort of picked up again in the 1960s when the official Palestinian um, position was to have a singular, a single secular democratic state in all of Palestine. So all of Palestine would be free in the sense that its people would be free. So there was never a formal Palestinian position calling for the forced removal of Jews from Palestine. Calling for a free Palestine was about Palestinians, not about Jews. And so making it about Jews once again erases Palestinians, dismisses their lived realities and experiences with Zionism and ignores their demands for justice and ignores their historic ties to the land that, that those ties are both national and local at the same time. Um, and again, I think it's timely we're talking about this today because today is also the fourth anniversary after Mark Lamont Hill gave his remarks at the UN where he ended by saying that he hoped to see a free Palestine from the river to the sea. And then the next day, which would have been November 30th, he was uh, fired from CNN and there was a big kind of hullabaloo, um, which again is a reflection of those power asymmetries. Mark Lamont Hill had spent 20 minutes at the UN on November 29th, laying out in meticulous detail the forms of repression that Palestinians were facing at that time, ended by calling for freedom. And then it became all about Mark Lamont Hill not, you know, not respecting Jews, using these quote-unquote anti-Semitic tropes, et cetera. So those are how the power asymmetries play out. It becomes about them and not about us. And when it's not about us, that's time that we're taking away from educating people about the Palestinian condition and their calls for justice, diverting attention from that to then be on the back foot and say, no, 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 that's not what we meant. No, 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 that's not what we need. So it plays out in very destructive ways, again, because it's shutting down conversation and not opening up space for more conversation. That is, that was so great. That was so, um, that was so clear and, um, and cogent and thank you for all of that. And, and I also really appreciate that um, as you were talking, I wanted to ask like 10 more questions because I, I, I so respect and, and appreciate hearing you unpack concepts and in hearing your thoughts. And because I want our audience to get to hear more from you, um, which hopefully will keep, will keep happening. We'll keep um, talking. Let's keep talking. <laughs> let's keep talking. But I, but I also, as, as you were talking, I was thinking, right, but this conversation is a conversation about how we have the conversations, the conversation that we're having right now. And you just in this last uh, answer, you really demonstrated for us again, your um, specific methodology and approach to how we have this this conversation again, and 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 um, and the very preciousness of our time together, and 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 your time with the audiences you're addressing, and how critically important it is to focus on, um, as as you called it, the, the Palestinian condition, or how how Palestinians 
our living and to to um to to not walk down the road of 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 distraction or or the road of of uh, taking the the camera away taking the frame away from Palestinians but actually to refocus on Palestinians and on Palestinian lives experiences narratives um analysis framing and 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 really claim to their own lives and experiences and their own voice in in, in describing the realities um and so you have really demonstrated that for us and I want to thank you for that well, thank you for having me. Thank you for having this conversation. I will, I will share with the audience that we've had many conversations that have not been recorded on these topics because they require a lot of unpacking. Um, and I hope that we continue to have these conversations both for the public and in private as we continue to hash these things out because we need to bring to the fore how we talk about what we talk about. We need to be, I think, a little more cognizant of what it, what are we saying when we say what we're saying. Mm -hmm. And so having these discussions, I think helps us bring that to the fore, which then in turn helps us become clearer about what it is that we're doing. And hopefully also helps us become more aware and more um, cognizant of what other people are saying and kind of where they're coming from. Because I think that's really important too, not just to be clear on where you're coming from, but also to try to become clear and get curious about where other people are coming from too. Great. Thank you. So um, to be continued. Be continued. And I, so thank you, Maha, for today. And um, thank you to you, all of our listeners, for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Uh, project of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. You can visit our website, www.fmep.org, to subscribe to our many resources and also to find today's podcast episode along with links to the resources that we mentioned and additional uh, resources about this topic and many others. I am Sarah Ann Minkin signing off for today. Take good care. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.